0: Welcome to the Middle East 101 Lecture Series 2023. This lecture series gives you a comprehensive overview of the Middle East region and its impacts on Singapore and the world. Today's lecture is the fifth in this series, which is a continuation of the segment dedicated to economic and social challenges in the regions, in the Middle East region. So today we focus on the changing gulf by delving into the region's domestic politics and social reforms. This lecture will be presented by my colleague, Dr. Clemens Che. My name is Asif Shuja, and I'll be the moderator for the day. Since this lecture is being conducted both in person and online via Zoom, once we enter the question and answer round, the participants physically present here in this room may raise their hands to ask questions and wait for this mic to come. The online participants may send in their questions to the event team through the Zoom chat box. Let me now briefly introduce today's presenter. Dr. Clemens Che is a research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute. His research focuses on the history and politics of the Gulf states with a particular emphasis on Kuwait, Oman and Qatar. At MEI, he spearheads a highly successful public education series entitled Bridging the Gulf. His recent academic publications include a chapter that examines Kuwait's parliamentary politics in the Routledge Handbook of Persian Gulf Politics, a chapter in the edited volume *Informal Politics in the Middle East, and a study appearing in the Journal of Arabian Studies titled The Diwaniya Tradition in Modern Kuwait an interlinked space and practice. His commentaries also feature across different outlets, including Italian Institute for International Political Studies, King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies, and Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. That amounts to scholarly outreach to three continents. He is currently working on a book project related to Kouas Divanias, affectionately known as diwabeen and more widely known as Majlis outside Kuwait. The reception rooms for informal meetings that have implications for society, politics, and diplomacy. Prior to joining MEI, Dr. Che was the Al-Sabah Fellow at Darham University, where he taught and completed his PhD in Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies, and where he also re- received an MSc in Defense Development and Diplomacy. He is also a sciences po Paris alumnus. Having read his BA at the Menton campus, Clemens is amongst those dedicated Singaporeans who have illustrated exemplary scholarship on Middle East and Gulf region. With this introduction, I hand over the floor to Clemens, uh, please.
1: Thank you, Asif. Thank you for this uh, comprehensive introduction. Uh, and I'm, it's good to see people in the crowd today and also online. Today, I'm going to talk about the domestic policies and uh, social reforms in the Gulf Arab states and I'm going to share my slides with you right now. (coughs) So thanks Thanks. again, Asif, for the introduction. Uh, This year I'm dealing with the domestic affairs of the Gulf Arab states. Last year I was talking about the geopolitics of the region. uh, Two somewhat different angles, but uh, still on the same sub-region of the Middle East, Uh, the oil rich uh, states of the of the region and of course the angle is is very different because last year we 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 were talking about interstate relations and now we're talking about what's going on inside the countries the six countries that we are actually going to be looking at today some more than others there are six there will be the Saudi Arabia the UAE Qatar Bahrain Oman and Kuwait so six of them and of course uh they are in the middle of uh socio transformations and i wanted to let you know what went on in my mind when i was preparing these slides so if you look at you know the uh, the slide in front of you right now there was a very brief uh outline that i had for uh the presentation today and uh what went through my head was, you know, it's just a mind map of concepts, which will obviously is going to tie down with uh, what happens on the ground. And if you see, if you look at the slide in front of you, uh, you r- realize that some of them are theories. And, and I think theories that are very relevant to the region, some are long-held concepts uh, in the literature. And we want to see how we can update them or of course, correct certain misconceptions. Uh, if you look at it, we have suburbanization/slash urbanization, we have rentier theory, we have the family unit, which has now come back into prominence. It's all long been there, of course, but I'm saying that it's being at the tip of people's tongues uh, at the minute. Uh there's economic diversification, which is the long-standing uh hot topic because of the fact that these are oil states and the question is when and how are they going to move away from the oil sector and produce a a high level of non-oil income so if you look at the bottom right you know i i put on um, a number of themes including oil and gas which will be covered next week by another speaker last week we had climate change by my colleague dr aisha al-sarihi and there there are all these interconnecting themes that of course today will be uh you know i intend to cover and try to Link them all together uh, in a way. So, outline of uh, today's presentation uh, we have to cover a little on the historical context of the the Gulf states. Uh, We'll start with the most uh, visual of all, um, you know, the visual of all slides, which, which is the development in terms of space, spatial development, urbanization, modernization, and how things change in terms of the physical landscape from the past to the present. Okay, we're fine. And then we'll look into the visions, because every country has a vision right now. There's uh, Saudi Vision 2030, there's Kuwait Vision 2035. Uh, the Emiratis have gone on to develop a centennial plan for 2071. So there's various visions. Of course, the question is whether they can achieve it, and what's, what's the report card on the way to achieving what they set up in these visions or the documents tied to these visions, uh, of course, there's going to be economic competition because of that similar resource that uh, every one of them has some more than others. But um, you know, the competition then is about who can attract the best investments, who can attract the most skilled foreign professionals, um, and who will be leading the race. And of course, the final bit is updating rentier theory, which I will come. To that when we get there uh, then we talk about the family because the question is if you have such economic transformation um how does this impact society or how does society respond to these policy, economic policies within their respective political systems or within their respective uh you know kinship systems uh, we'll come to that, and you can see we talk a lot about kinship at the end, including nationalism. How some of these economic policies actually, you know, produces uh, a sense of local, localized nationalism on the ground. Like I said, we're going to start spatially, you know, uh, in terms of space, how things have developed since independence, or even pre-independence, and the kind of urbanization that took place. This is in Kuwait. Uh, the bottom right box of your screen is actually the nineteen fifty-two master plan. Uh, It starts from the coast because the first part of the development is on the top left box where you see that there was a small settlement or small port by the coast or by the shore where obviously you would have guessed that maritime trade would be the main main kind of activities that, that went on and the main source of income at that time. And we are talking about now... Pre-1950s, until the master plan was developed, uh, we we're talking about purling, shipbuilding, we we're talking about um, you know, sea captains, you know, uh, that whole line of occupational trade that is tied in with the sea. And you see the development, and you see, you know, from the left to the right, as, as they move inland, yeah, the, the sea trade is connected to the bazaar or the souk or the market. And then when the 1952 plan came into, came into, was put into, you know, was effective, we start to see roads. We start to see, uh, you know, more residential areas. And it's a very similar story for the rest of the Gulf, of course, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, because they are based in the hinterland with a huge and, and and you know, white desert vast desert land so it's a bit different for from from saudi arabia but then again the, this the similar kind of urbanization phase occurred across the board and you see here in your on your slide the 1968 dosaydis master plan for riyadh which also implemented a kind of system kuwait's one was based on ring roads concentric ring, ring roads while riyadh's one was a grid system and this still still stays today, Uh, there are of course other developments, and if you look at the satellite map, you see the expansion as well, which we saw very similarly to the Kuwaiti kind uh, in the last slide. And I wanted to show you um, again, this is very typical of, of a Gulf city, we are looking at Dubai,
2: history of Dubai in 50 seconds. Dubai used to be a small fishing village but its location at the Persian Gulf, a crossing point between East and West, helped it become a big trading hub in the Gulf. By the early 20th century, Dubai's main industry was pearl diving. Dubai's transformation began with Sheikh Rashid who was inspired by his trip to London in 1959 and started implementing his plan to turn Dubai into an international city. In 1966, oil was discovered in Dubai. Although the oil reserves were quite modest by Middle Eastern standards, they helped Sheikh Rashid implement his dream of turning Dubai into an international city by investing the oil profits in urban development. Sheikh Mohammed, Sheikh Rashid's son, continued his father's work and decided to make Dubai a city of the biggest and tallest structures. He initiated the construction of Dubai International Airport, Dubai Financial Center, as well as Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. His mega-projects helped Dubai become the major international hub that it is today. Let me know in the comments if you've been to Dubai.
1: Uh, so in a very short 50 second clip, I think some of the things that we can single out among others are number one, pearling, which I've said pearl diving was a was one of the main source of income, the main trades in the region, oil, the discovery of oil, of course, which for some more than others helped to boost the economy as they move towards independence, and then in the early independence years, towards a globalist city, which is what happens after urbanization happens. Uh, we, we saw Dubai Financial Center, we saw uh, the airport. And so it's there's a dream, there's an ambition towards being a hub because of their strategic location between the West and the East. Uh, and of course, that's why, you know, hence the term Middle East, because they're they right in the middle of the two. Um, and then superlatives superlatives being that they want to be the ambition is there they want to be the best they have the tallest uh, structure uh, bush khalifa is one of them as you as you saw and it's not just in dubai that you find a very similar path you know uh, where you start from a very modest calling town or port city and then there was the oil discovery and then now with that money with the newfound wealth you build up your city, you build up your country, and you move towards uh, being a global hub. And to show that, to show you know, to to show how wealthy you are or to show how prosperous you are, you start building, you know, the superlatives. So it's, it's a very similar story across the board. But I just wanted to 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 make sure that you understand that you know, with the exception of, of course Saudi Arabia, which didn't really go much into pearling, the rest of them were actually very much engaged in maritime trade. So what kind of Gulf city are we talking about? And, and this, again, is Dubai, an aerial uh, view of Dubai. The question you have to ask yourself, when you have such rapid urbanization across a period of two or three decades, what how is that going to impact or affect the local communities? You know, if you saw the if you remember the Kuwaiti development or urban development, you saw that it was a very small circle or semicircle of um interconnected mud houses at that time. And then what you have today is very, very different than than what you saw in the past. So the kind of urbanization they were talking about, how would it impact the family unit? The family unit which actually consisted of a, an, an extended family living in one courtyard house. And now with, of course, the urban development, they are going to be suburbanized. They're going to be put into different neighborhoods. The car or the automobile is going to be the main form of transport and not your feet. And. And things are different. I mean, the everyday life is different. To from one place to another, the, the car is the main means of put, taking you from point A to point B. And again, if you think about more recent uh, phenomena, think about COVID nineteen. How would that, how would that change things if it had been, you know, in that kind of interconnected, uh, closely knitted community than it is today. So I think these are the kind of thing in terms of urbanism, in terms of uh, society that we want to start thinking about. And, and the kind of development that these states have gone through in a period of 20, 30 years, of course, now since independence, it's already been for some fifty to 60s, for some more than that, 80 or 90. If you look at Gulf cities and, and, and you can characterize them in the Middle East, Yasser El-Shesh uh, 2008, his his book on the evolving Arab city, edited volume really, and his introduction says that there is a great divide between the traditional centers and and the emerging cities, what he calls the emerging cities, and the emerging cities are the ones that he uh, says that are the Gulf cities that that we are just talking about right now. Um, I think that there must be some nuance to this argument because... His argument is that you know it, Gulf cities are unburdened by history. In other words, no history. Uh, I mean, we just saw that it was once uh, they were once port cities, there were once, you know, a kind of organic urbanism by the shore because everything is connected to maritime trade. So are you saying that because of urbanization and because that you, you erase that kind of landscape, we are just erasing history completely? You know, altogether, I think I think there is a kind of problem in, in in this in this argument because the kind of um, urbanism that you found in the past will find its way back into the modern city, but in some other ways, and we will look at that later. Uh, the kind of communal spirit that I'm, that I'm what I'm trying to get at will find its way not in terms of the physical landscape, but in something else, which we will cover later. Of course, we talked about the wealth that the Gulf states have, Gulf Arab states have, and this is in comparison with uh, the rest of the Middle East. Uh, the circles that you see there uh, is a comparison between population in major cities in, in the MENA region on the left, and then the GDP per capita on the right. Uh, that was in 2008, and the updated figures are in the orange table on, on, on the right side of the slide. Uh, but you see that you know, not much have changed except the fact that you know uh, in terms of intra-Gulf differences there are things have changed but by and large you see that the gulf cities in terms of per capita they are much more well off than the rest of the middle east and and if you go and go into the imf database you realize that you are unable to find data for states such as syria such as lebanon precisely because they are currently on having a civil war or in in severe crisis which is why you there there are no numbers but if but I like I said, if you look at the orange table, by and large, you know, the Gulf states are taking the lead in terms of GDP per capita, which shows the amount of wealth you have in, in these countries. And on the subject of oil, and before we dive into more uh you know domestic developments, uh Gulf energy in the international system is crucial. Uh and I think we in Singapore also realize that because some of the oil tankers that pass through the straits of Hormuz, which, which is a choke point for all vessels, you know, uh, it's a problem if it's blocked. To put it to put it simply, and consumer nations are affected by the price changes that are dictated by OPEC, and even here in Singapore, we 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 are we follow we are we follow the prices that are set by by OPEC. And if you look again, to reiterate the point, um, right now, uh, Brent crude oil price is currently at around $90 per barrel, which is obviously helping, I think, which is generating a lot of wealth for the Gulf Arab states. Uh, And even more so with the war in Ukraine, I think my colleague Dr. John Lu Saman covered that previously uh which actually put the gulf states back in the limelight in terms of the energy crisis at at least for europe as well because qatar for example signed a 15-year lng deal when when europe was thinking where are they going to get their gas from apart from russia and qatar comes in and signs the 15-year lng deal with with germany and do not forget that we talked about the strategic location of the Gulf Arab states, the fact that 30% of all container trade and 16% of air cargo passes through this region. So I think in these two slides, we are seeing like the um, this prosperity uh, of the region based on not only on energy prices, but also on you know, their strategic lo- geographical location. So we move into domestic policies, diversification, and how that's linked to Intra Gulf competition and also uh, the welfare state and what to make of it. Now, rentier model is is a theory that has been there when we talk about uh, the Gulf Arab states. The rentier model says that no representation without taxation. Uh, the the idea of it is saying that because these states have so much oil wealth, you know, the these sources, these revenues will then be redistributed. To their population in in different kinds of in different forms of welfare benefits, it could be subsidies, it could be you know uh, plots of land, it could be healthcare benefits, educational subsidies, so on. And in return, because the state is providing so much, the citizens would then provide their allegiance, meaning to say there will be very little dissent uh, and a high level of uh, loyalty. Okay, this is what the theory presumes, of course. Um, but this model requires updating because in recent years, taxation has been introduced uh, precisely because there is increased energy intensity in terms of consumption, domestic consumption. And the Gulf states have, have been forced to relook at subsidy reform. Uh, utilities, tariffs on utilities have been raised across the 2010s. Uh, you know, that with the exception of Kuwait and Qatar, like I said, have been imposed. so that there is some kind of uh, economic adjustment. Um, on top of that, you have a very youthful population, which of course wants to see change. Uh, and we'll come to that again when we talk about the family, which means that we are also moving towards a sort of generational change. Uh, a generation that wants to see things done differently a generation that hopes for more opportunities including in employment and also you know seeing the country moving forward uh, in terms of social reforms as well but one challenge uh, as you can see on your on your slide in front of you is that there remains a public sector bias uh, in terms of national employment especially Thinking that you know, as we call here the iron rice bowl, but over there I'm meaning to say that guaranteed job security, a job for life, is still being regarded as employment in the government sector. So if you hold, a, they believe that if you hold a government job, you you'll be paid for life, and that is that is one challenge in terms of the psyche, the mental, the mentality of of that that needs to be changed. You know, you can say that. Uh, the country is winning itself off oil but you know that to remain competitive you need to boost both the public and the private sectors another clip and a more recent one
3: when you think about the massive wealth of countries in the gulf the first thing that comes to mind is oil
4: oil is about so much more than just what's coming out of the ground oil is about money it's about politics and it's about power
3: as oil producers, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Oman, Kuwait, and Bahrain are some of the wealthiest countries in the world. Together, they make up as well. Perhaps the Qatar Development Bank CEO. He said it best when he asked, "What would we be able to produce if oil and gas did not exist?"
4: I think that uh, when he's saying we we have to have something beyond oil uh, to offer the world. He's speaking for every Gulf Arab economy, and it's not something that they don't know, whether it be the volatility in oil prices when they crashed out and went under 40, or even during the global pandemic when they hit almost zero. I mean, this was a situation where we had negative prices for the very first time, um, and it was one which nobody could have predicted, but certainly galvanized this push to diversification. They're working very hard though on these diversification strategies. They've not been unaware that the world is changing, but when you have you know, 80 plus years of oil wealth, basically dictating how your economies are running. It's a you know fast and solid moving freight train that you've literally got to put the brakes on and then reverse.
3: What Hatleys emphasizing here is that economic diversification from oil is inevitable, and each Gulf country has charted a different course to getting there. For example, there's Saudi Vision 2030, a strategic framework to reduce the state's dependency on oil.
4: The Vision 2030, instituted a couple of years ago with the ascension of the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, really uh, changed the game in a sense because it brought the opportunity for an IPO of Saudi Aramco, something that nobody thought was going to be possible and which they managed to pull off.
3: The listing of Saudi Aramco on the Saudi stock exchange valued the world's biggest oil and gas company at $1.7 trillion and raised $25.6 billion at the time. That amount fell short of the $100 billion investment Aramco executives were hoping to
4: count on to help diversify the economy away from oil. So for decades, education beyond religious education was not emphasised.
1: Okay, so now we just saw this CNBC interview or discussion on the importance of diversification because you can't rely on oil income forever. Uh, and and which is why this is an integral part of the different visions, you know, produced by the Gulf Arab states. And notably, if you saw from the the clip that we just watched, Saudi Vision 2030 is one of them, under the current Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And some I understand from my colleagues that there was a question on Neom uh, last week. And and Neom is another grandiose project where. You know, uh, you're trying to produce a sustainable, create a sustainable city. Uh, if you go and Google the LINE project, you will see that, you know, you'll see that it's a very ambitious project. Uh, whether or not you will meet the targets, uh, that is another question. But there is a sense of optimism in Saudi Arabia right now. Uh, and there's a sense of um, encouragement among the population that, that the ambitions of the crown prince you know are uh, forward looking and they will produce more opportunities in terms of employment and and these are the kinds of um, uh, national aspirations that Saudi Arabia wants to achieve and now not just you know from within the crown prince has made moves you know in the region diplomatic moves to be involved in a whole lot of other initiatives. Of course, I'm not going to go into that because I'm supposed to be sticking to the domestic agenda. But if you can look at the the slide in front of you, you see that one of them is a high-speed railway uh, in Neom that's aimed at connecting different parts of Saudi Arabia. There's also development for the ports, uh, Red Sea Resorts. and, And this doesn't just apply to Saudi Arabia. The UAE, for example, has just launched the Etihad Rail which has allowed uh, cargo to be transported from one Emirate to another. And there are seven Emirates in the UAE, and, and this new newly operational Etihad rail will aim to transport goods and services around. And of course, the next step, the next logical step will be passenger services. And the number of construction and transport contract awards doesn't stop there, they don't stop there. The um, uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, in 2022, actually uh, you know, issued the, the highest number of uh, construction projects in the Gulf. And of course, uh, the sizable portion of this money and contracts goes to Neom. Um, and, and this figure surpasses that of giant markets such as Riyadh, Abu Dhabi, and, and Dubai. And that's, that's, that's the magnitude of development that we are seeing in, in Saudi Arabia on infrastructure Spending, but also with an eye on modernity, uh, you know, because we have uh, Kidia being des- the designated entertainment city. Uh, and of course, we are aware that we are aware that, um, you know, women are allowed to drive since 2018. And things have moved on since then. Uh, society, the relig- religious police is no longer patrolling the streets, trying to, uh, Catch people who are not adhering to religious uh, guidelines. Uh, we have non religious uh, tourist visas being issued now, which was formerly not not the case. And we also have K pop. We have Blackpink going to Saudi Arabia earlier this year in, in January. So you see the kind of development and fast paced change that we're talking about in Saudi Arabia. Uh, things like entertainment, you know, uh, that once had to be following the guidelines of a fatwa or religious uh, issued uh, kind of uh, declaration, you know, to to follow the, declaration, the, the religious guidelines and things like this, these are now out of the picture. You know, uh, you have things that now Saudi youth consider as moving forward and progressing towards modernity and you have such projects which show that the country and the leadership is intending to move in that So, transformation, how is this perceived by, of course, its neighbors? Uh, Often than not, uh, I hear the phrase, the giant awakens from some of the officials and uh, residents from uh, the other Gulf states. Uh, Because Saudi Arabia, of course, being the custodian of the two holy mosques, Mecca and Medina, um, has long been viewed as religiously conservative, uh, adhering to the Wahhabi doctrine of, of Islam. Uh, but then comes a Crown Prince who, who, who tore it all away. And I think amid these developments in terms of infrastructure, resort projects, entertainment cities, I think one of the things that gives people optimism is the investment in human, in human capital. And I think that's been, that's been a talk uh, in, in the region for a long, long time, that you know, you should teach men to fish rather than get someone to fish for you and bring the fish to your table. I think, I think that's the that's the idea now. That there is an optimism because the current leadership sees that vocational training, improving the skill sets of your nationals, is the way to go. And post oil economy doesn't mean that you find just find non oil income. But you need a radical systemic change. You need a radical um, change of mindset. And of course, that requires time. And it might require one generation. And the roadmap, as said, as laid out by the vision, is to aspire to become a vibrant society, have a possess a thriving economy, and remain ambitious along the way. And let's look at another clip. And this one was at the Future Investment Initiative. And these are very, very bold words. And this came out, uh, this resurfaced. It was in 2018, but this resurfaced after the India, uh, Middle East corridor concept came out of the latest G20 summit. And this is trending on social media right now.
5: I think that the new Europe is the Middle East. المملكة العربية السعودية في الخمس سنوات القادمة سوف تكون مختلفة تماماً البحرين سوف تكون مختلفة تماماً الكويت حتى قطر على خلافنا معهم لديهم اقتصاد قوي سوف تكون مختلفة تماماً بعد خمس سنوات الإمارات عمان لبنان، الأردن، مصر العراق والفرص التي لديها إذا نجحنا في الخمس سنوات القادمة سوف تلتحق فينا الدول أكثر تكون القادمة في العالم في الشرق الأوسط شاء الله هذه حرب السعوديين هذه حربي اللي ولا أريد أن الحياة إلا وأرى الشرق الأوسط في مقدمة مصاف العالم وأعتقد أن هذا الهدف سوف so you see the kind of
1: ambition by the Saudi leadership at the minute. Of course, this was 2018 and he said five years. So of course, we we are still witnessing the change uh, and something that you will go beyond 2030, which is, the, which is what the vision sets out. Um, but one thing's for sure, Saudi Arabia has moved on on the regional arena, even in the global arena to take the lead in, in many things. Um, and of course, led by the Crown Prince who is of course leading uh, the Gulf summit, the GCC summit, uh the middle east green initiative among others and so there's a sense that putting putting the you know putting the country's hands in a very young leadership you know uh, is is the wise move of course the man himself uh, you know has it, credit is owed to the man himself because he maneuvered his way up and he of course uh uh you know rivals and push foes out of the way in order to be in the position that he is right now. Okay. So besides Saudi Arabia, I think we just saw what the Saudi vision is about. Does that mean that, uh, the other Gulf Arab states are behind? The answer is no. And I think the, the the rest are not resting on their laurels in particular, the UAE. Um, the UAE has always been uh, at the forefront of, uh, economic development, economic growth. Uh, Dubai has always been uh, their star on the global stage. Uh, But you see that the Saudis are trying to play catch up. You see that we had Dubai Expo, which has already passed. Now the Saudis want to do Riyadh Expo 2030. And and that's why you see hosting mega events, one of them, the Qataris have done the World Cup. Of course, we all know that. Uh, And hosting mega events is one way of putting yourself on the map. Uh, we have things like the Bloomberg Economic Forum, all these things that because they have the money, they can host, uh, and they, they are willing to spend. And I think for, for a few reasons, one of them is publicity. Uh, second of them is trying to, of course, win minds and hearts and minds over. Uh, it could be very specific hearts and minds. Um, but also there is a competition, especially between the Saudis and Emiratis, Project HQ, Uh, by Saudi Arabia is trying to pull companies into Saudi Arabia by January 2024. They want uh, businesses to be stationed and headquartered in Saudi Arabia or they will not be given any contracts at all uh, by January 2024. And that's one way of trying to pull the firms from Dubai and Abu Dhabi, for example. And there is a competition going now. And of course, the question then is which city you know, has a more appealing living environment than the other, you know, or which uh social climate or political climate is more stable? Uh, is there is the ease of business better in this city than the other? Uh, of course, Texas is there right now, but, you know, things like social entertainment. Can you consume alcohol? Can you go out? Uh, for nightlife for example things are these are the things that come to the minds of foreign expatriates who come into these cities to work and and there are moves to change the landscape so we, we will look at that in a bit and now we talked about Saudi Arabia now let's look at the UAE and this the the legal reforms by the UAE started at the end of 2019 and now they are in place but let's look at the list of them Beep. Mm-hmm. see that this uh, the showcase of legal reforms is by Arabian business, and and uh, for good reason, because it's showing that the UAE is trying to pull ahead of the rest in terms of, like what I just said earlier, creating a conducive environment for doing business and a desirable place of residence. In other words, attracting foreign professionals, and that's very important, especially for countries with small national populations, such as the UAE and Qatar. Uh, they are national segment of the population is about 10%. And of course, they rely heavily on on, on foreigners to come in, especially in the service sector, but also on skilled professionals uh, for some of the things that they do, advice, consultancies, and of course, investments. Um, And this this slide, actually, I, I wanted to show you that all these moves to bolster the economy needs to be considered in the context of the society, so all these moves that you just saw—cohabitation between uh, co- cohabitation between unmarried couples, uh, the uh, permitting alcohol consumption—you know what would that do to Emirati society? How would they take that? Would they accept it? How would they react? I think this is something to think about. Um, okay, all right, Okay, so before we go into Specific examples. I want to introduce another concept, which is capital. Capital, not as in not as in not financial capital, kind of capital, but what Pierre Boudier, a French sociologist, who talked about cultural capital and social capital. He developed these theories while studying the French education system, but also when he was in Algeria, uh, living in Algeria. Uh, um, and he did field work and later but conceptualized uh, this this theory of capital, where cultural capital means that it's an asset that you pass down from one generation to the next. Meaning to say, if your father or your mom were a doctor or a lawyer, that level of knowledge, expertise would be there to pass on to the next generation, or to encourage the next your sons and daughters to pursue a similar kind of career, because you were there, you've been there, done that, you want your kids to pursue the similar path. So this is a kind of know-how, knowing your family, the kind of um, intangible asset transmission that's inherited by the next generation. Social capital, on the other hand, uh, is explained by Bogdia as, as uh, connections, or sometimes social obligations. In general, networking, expanding your your networks and being able to tap on them whenever you need them. So as you can see, the arrows here, social capital goes out horizontally, broadens, while cultural capital is passed down from one generation to the next. And that brings us to the family because cultural capital is passed down by the family. But how is the family relevant to what we are talking about? Gulf Arab states first because of the kind of political system where kinship is very heavily uh, entrenched in, in this political system the family you rule like a family basically the ruling family rules the style of governance is is based is on based on the fam- on the family and we'll talk about that a bit more but right now like i said there are changes you know you want to attract more foreign professionals, expatriates. So you want to move towards a uh, modern and inclusive society, but that also means to negotiate the tensions between nationals and non-nationals. How would you bring you know, the foreigner into the family? Or at least regard that they have some kind of contribution to the family. That is point two and five, as you can see on the side, we'll come back again. And of course, three and four, three being uh, the traditions that are still there, uh, lineage, because the family plays a, a very heavy role. Uh, who's your father? Who's your grandfather? What were their achievements, and so on? And this ties in with the discussion on national identity, you know, and citizenship. We will come back to that again, because some of them are giving golden visas, and the UAE, uh, as a standout, as a as the distinct one among the other states is the one that is granting citizenship to foreigners but on a case-by-case basis decided by the leadership. So again we are going to then the question is how what what is the criteria you know how going, how are you going to pick which foreigner to to grant that kind of to issue that citizenship because with that citizenship comes with the comes the benefits all the benefits that come along with that with that passport right And of course the final number four is performance accountability uh you have ambitions you have visions uh can you be transparent enough to, to let your people know that you know this is how far you have progressed and you have now a very um uh you know uh, active youth which demands more from, from the leadership so what happens in the in, in near future will you be able to give them the opportunities that they desire or not so we start with the political system. Um, and I won't read everything on the slide. But you can see that you know, um, there is a kind of there is d- dynastic monarchism, meaning that each country has a specific ruling family. Um, UAE is a bit different. It's, it, it has, it's a federation model of seven emirates. And each emirate has its own ruling family. But the paramount one is from Abu Dhabi. Um, but the role of ruling families, really, what changed on the part from then and now is that it used to be an interplay between the rulers, the merchants, and the tribal sheikhs. But in the modern state, things have changed because everything is institutionalized, everything is codified, formalized. So the kind of consensual power sharing is now within the ruling class itself. Um, so, if for example, if you take um, the al-Sabah sheikhs uh, from Kuwait, you know they will usually take up three, what they call three vital positions in cabinet, interior, defense, and foreign affairs. Uh, and these will be divided to the two most crucial branches of the ruling of the Sabah family. And I won't go into that, but essentially that you, you are doing a kind of, accepted power sharing within the ruling class, within the ruling family. And the same applies across the board, of course, with some exceptions. Uh, Oman is, of course, uh, ruled by a sultan, so it's a it's slightly different. But in general, there is a ruling family and, and the kind of leadership or the successor it taps into members of that ruling family. And this is the reason why I said uh, the UAE is a bit different because you have seven emirates uh, not just Dubai and Abu Dhabi that we know more commonly, uh, but you have Fujerar, Sahema, Umar Achman, and Shaoja, which each has a different character, Shaoja being the most conservative the lot. So if you saw the legal reforms just now in the clip saying that alcohol is permitted, in Shaoja, it's not permitted. So even though it's a federal decree is issued, you know, it might not be taken or accepted or implemented is the word by every single emirate okay so you know there are differences still although they belong to the same federal model okay now we move on to society and and negotiating ethnocracy which is actually negotiating the non-national uh and of course how do they progress towards creating a modern and inclusive society. Now, it's a bit worthy here, but I'll, I'll simplify it. Ethnocracy, you see the pyramid, uh, as Longva conceived, is saying that there is a hierarchy and there is a domination by ethnic group or by citizenship. In this case, obviously, the one that has the highest amount of welfare benefits or you know say, or voice is the gulf male citizen and then it goes down gulf female citizen and then the western professional and so on and at the bottom of that pyramid are asian domestic workers of course things have changed since she wrote that in 1997 and then again revised it in 2005 today in 2023 uh gulf states are advocating for tolerance i think in the UAE, there is a Ministry of Tolerance and Coexistence, which aims precisely to uh, introduce that sense of respect between members of their population, whether you are national or non-national. Um, and also, uh, there is a differentiation between uh, personal faith and state religion. Meaning, in the for example, again in the UAE, um, you are allowed to practice your own faith, which may be different than Islam, which is specified and stated very clearly in the state's constitution, in the UAE's constitution. Now, uh, there is a realization that you require or you need the contributions of your foreign population, your foreign segment of the population. And this dealing with ethnocracy is one way of creating a more conducive environment for for foreigners to come in. If you are going to be anti-foreigner all the time, and yet you require their contributions, and that is going to be a problem which will create tensions and conflict, right? And now we talk a bit about uh, lineage, tribal ties, and customs and traditions that still matter. Before we move on, let me just go back quickly to say that, of course, youth and women will be a lecture in itself. But uh, even that has improved over the years. Female representation in the workforce and in politics have gone up. Uh, in the Federal National Council of the UAE, which is the advisory council, uh, you have 50% who are women. In the UAE cabinet, nine ministers are females. So you see that you know that there is a concerted effort towards uh, moving forward. So uh lineage, tribal ties, custom and traditions. Now, I want to take you back to, to the visuals that I showed you in in the urbanization process, and this is Kuwait. 1930s, like I said, interconnected houses, mud houses. By the 1960s, you see some of the houses removed, you see some gaps, you know, if you look at look at Kuwait from above, you see some gaps, you see the development of the road starting to appear, and voila, you know, you see this is the concentric ring roads that we see today. Um, And so, now, like I asked very early in my presentation, what happens to all those communal spirits when you start dispersing your families, which were once extended families, into single villas, nuclear families, how are you going to bring them together? And and that is where I talk about the family, you know, what are the new policies, new programs that are introduced by the state to rekindle that kind of communal spirit. Now, you see, there are moves, and, and And my colleague, when he did the introduction that I I was studying the match list or the councils and reception rooms uh, in the region, you know, these rooms are places where the family come together. And traditionally, they are male preserved So the males of the family will come together and get together in the match list. Uh, And these are places where objectified cultural capital, meaning the family trees, the portraits and pictures of the ships their uncles and fathers and grandfathers who were previously ship captains or pearl divers are there in black and white and framed to remind the next generation and this was this was you know what used to be old Kuwait or old dubai or whatever it is uh, and and these are reminders uh, this is uh, of course the family trees like i said uh, Emirati students still carry their lineage booklets along with them to classes, they still look at them and see which family line they belong to and now of course it's also digitized you can go online and look at your roots and your family tree your family line and from the part of the state and the Ministry of Community Development for example you know, uh, they issue marriage grants to encourage Emiratis to, to marry Emiratis and of course part of the you know the aim is of course to preserve the national core and and it brings us back to the citizenship discussion because if the UAE is issuing citizenship to foreigners would these new citizens also be imbued with this idea of what it is to be emirati or what it is or the traditions of being an emirati there is going to be a problem because the current citizens will say that you know if you you give the, if you grant them citizenship, would there be will, will they be, uh you know do they understand our culture do they understand our tradition do they understand our norms, so now the question is how are they going to do it you know, citizenship was once, uh Gulf citizenship it was once a coveted prize now it's being issued starting with the UAE, so. Is there going to be a tier-based system? It's going to be like, say, if I grant you citizenship, you only get this limit. There is a ceiling to it, for example. So these are the questions that are ongoing, the changes that are ongoing, the debates that are being discussed at the minute in the leadership and in society. And finally, we talk a bit about performance accountability, which I briefly mentioned earlier, um, which I said ambitions, of course, are generally well-received right, by the population. But then the society will always be watching their leadership to find out whether there are tangible outcomes, uh, particularly on issues affecting everyday life, livability, uh, employment, uh, the nationalization of certain jobs. And there's an anecdote because in social media, there was, for example, one recruitment drive by Citibank in in Dubai. And the clip showed uh, an expatriate uh, inviting applications from Emiratis. And, and that triggered a social response because they're saying, why am I trying to get a job from a foreigner in my own country? You see, this is that this is the kind of debates that are being stirred on the ground precisely because you know, we talked about negotiating ethnocracy, but now there's a move or trying to change their mindset to negotiating meritocracy, you know. That you are gaining the job, you are taking the job based on your credentials, rather than based on, you know, your your ethnic your ethnicity. So, um, I, I wanted to finish this slide, uh, to say that, you know, to reiterate the fact that half to one third of the Gulf populations is now made out of youth under twenty five years of age, and social media, now serves as an important pressure point for societal stress relief, venting, or sometimes an indicator of public approval or disapproval. and But for now, across the board in general, there is a high level of loyalty and trust in the respective political leaderships. Perhaps with one exception, which is Kuwait, where there's still uh, domestic instability in terms of their politics. But the degree of local nationalism is high, and we saw with the visions, because there is from the leadership a willingness to put out these visions a willingness to put out these ambitions into projects and i think one example or one uh, manifestation of uh, this kind of nationalism is we see in the football sector we, we, we football sports arena uh we we we've seen the world cup the world cup has shown that an arab nation can actually host the world cup Uh, We've seen also um, uh, Manchester City, owned by Abu Dhabi, uh, winning the Champions League. And they came back to Abu Dhabi uh, with all the parade and and things like this. And there was a trending hashtag going on in social media. Uh, The hashtag meaning um, City Diamond Mansour, meaning City is always victorious. Uh, and there is a kind. That's the kind of nationalism that has been circulating within the population, and, and now, more recently, is the Saudi fever in terms of their sovereign wealth fund, the PIF, uh, granting funds for four clubs, four Saudi clubs to buy players, world class players. And then you see the list. I think you you may, if you follow football, you would know Fabrizio, uh, and and he gives the latest updates and 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 look at the top ten. Uh, the list of top 10 uh, acquisitions by Saudi clubs. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, started the process, but there are now many more who have joined the Saudi ranks. So with that, I will conclude today's presentation because I think we unpacked quite a fair bit uh, for today. And I think it's fair to say that the Gulf Arab states, is an exciting time for them. The Gulf Arab states are in the thick of socioeconomic transformation, uh, there is a flurry of diplomatic activity at the interstate level. I think this has been covered in the last few lectures. Um, but at home, the concern has is, is always been whether society can keep up. Uh, there's always been the question whether the Saudis are moving forward too fast and too far ahead. Or are they getting ahead of themselves, really? Uh, because the UAE did it for over a couple of decades and so on, but now the Saudis are trying to do it in one decade or maybe you know, faster than that. Uh, And, of course, we are going to uh, bring back the notion of capital. I know uh, there is an accumulation of social capital or a drive to accumulate social capital and harnessing it into economic capital among the Gulf states. But there is also now more than ever a a constant eye on retaining cultural capital Uh, to say that, you know, we need to put an eye and watch that we have a national core to preserve the national core, to you know, um, you know, put an emphasis on the family unit, which has already gone undergone an upheaval during that earlier modernization, urbanization phase, as we saw from the various visuals that, that we had on the slides. So now the challenge really, besides the mindset change that I talked about, is to continue to respond to a youthful population, but also staying competitive in a global economy. And that drive, towards economic diversification towards uh, winning themselves off oil must be sustained in order to get there and of course they have to at the same time equip and train their own nationals with the necessary skill sets so with that i i finish i think i will i will hand it back to asif
0: uh thank you so much uh, Clements. it was really intense shows sure that you have really lived this research uh, what you have just presented in the form of lecture now we will get back into the question and answer round uh, those of you here uh, maybe we can start if you have any question patrick yeah please go ahead
6: Hi, my name is patrick okay it's very good that you've been talking about the upside and your concluding remark you hedged it uh you you made uh daily assumptions about this change happening in a generation i would take it about 40 years a lot can happen in 40 years. But just a question about the hedging the downside. What are the Gulf states doing to ensure that this generational shift can be protected from external threats? One example I can give is let's take Niyom. Let's say it's a wonderful success, but happen chance state piracy become, becomes a new policy for. Uh, let's say Mediterranean powers or Indian Ocean powers. If I block the Red Sea, no matter how wonderful Neom is, in one year its people will starve and the whole city will collapse. And your generational shift of forty years is destroyed in one year. Yeah, just what? So, so the basic question going back is, what are the Gulf states doing to protect this generational transformation?
1: Yeah. Thanks for your question, Patrick. Uh, I think the on the Red C, the person you'll be asked should be asking is, is actually my colleague down there. But uh I mean the strategy in terms of protecting their generation and protecting a specific part of the kingdom, for example, is precisely what they are doing now. They are moving forward to take re- regional leadership under the current crown prince. They are trying to make friends with everybody, you know. Uh, ranging from bricks and now the uh, India-Middle East corridor, you know, they're venturing out and not just staying within the Gulf region. Uh, and of course, uh, Dr. John Lu, my colleague, also talked about Israel and there's always been dealings with Israel under the table, whether or not relations have been uh, normalized or not. So these are the kind of overtures that The Gulf states have already taken, you know, and and now we are in a climate of regional de-escalation, which is precisely the best time to kick off all these investments and, you know, without much risk. Uh, Of course, when, how long that this uh, climate of regional thaw and dayton will last, that is another story. Um, And I think also, I think the threat of Iran, you know, the threat of Iran, which has always been there, you know, now is also being dealt with by, the Gulf GCC states themselves, they, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, with the China being the broker, the, the peace broker, has signed an agreement with, with Iran as well. So again, that's another sign that that whole slew of uh, diplomatic, uh, newfound diplomatic uh, relations will will actually bode well for the future in terms of protecting the assets at home. Yeah.
0: Uh, thank you so much uh, uh do we have any other question uh Aisha please
7: so thank you very much Clements uh, for uh insightful presentation um you mentioned uh that uh, with the economic diversification we are seeing more of a competition uh, between the countries in the region um my question is um even though there is a competition, uh, but the Gulf countries has also established the Gulf Cooperation Council, which aims like to uh, promote for the uh, economic and security integration uh, in the region. Uh, Don't you see any signs for, especially for the economic integration that allows, for example, the flow of human capital between the Gulf countries uh, or something similar to what we see in Europe, like uh, the Schengen visa for the tourists. Uh, so they don't need like to apply for each country. Um, uh, for me, I lived in Saudi Arabia for two years. At the time, I barely met any Omanis when I worked there. So I wonder if you see any signs of integrations.
1: I think I'm going to take respond in a few levels. First level, I would say Aisha, you probably know better than me in terms of uh, movement of peoples across the intra Gulf borders. Uh, two, I think there are signs, there are signs of optimism. We, we, we saw some railway projects already, and there's another one that, that will go in from Saudi to Oman uh, and also UAE to Oman. So I think we are seeing some signs where this could, this could happen. I mean, Etihad Rail right now, like I said, is only operational in terms of cargo services. But the next move will be passenger services. And and I think, uh, why not? Why not? Because that also means the circulation of social capital and economic capital within that region itself. You're spending money on tourism within that small part of the Middle East, within the region. And and I think there's a a lot of money to be spent. Um, And it talk about people-to-people movement. I think uh, for some... So well, I think in terms of, you have to look at the land borders as well. Uh, for some, it's easier to cross than the other. Saudi Bahrain is, is one of them, as you know. And and the next question is also, of course, whether they have truly recovered from uh, the episode that happened from 2017 to 21, which is the boycott or blockade of Doha, whichever term you prefer to call it. Uh, and whether, because that's also a rupture in terms of kinship ties, kinship has always been an important element of Gulf of societies, and you have, you may have a, a Saudi citizen who has a Qatari relative, for example, and that period of time, uh, relations were ruptured, you were not allowed to travel, uh, the question is, is it now really back to normal? I think we have to ask the families on the ground themselves whether this is really back to normal, but uh, they seem to be actually uh advocating that there's a sense of normalcy. We will turn the page and, and things like this. But again, like I said, there's a sense of optimism. How long this will last, uh, we don't we don't know. Yeah. Uh,
0: thank you so much, uh, Clarence. Uh, We have some questions from the floor which uh, which are really related to international relations, so I'm not taking them. I would request the audience if they could confine themselves questions on domestic policies and social reform uh, in the region because this uh, lecture is uh, primarily focused on that. We have other lectures for uh, other issues. Uh, Is there any other question from the floor? Uh,
3: Thanks, Clement. Yes, I just want to ask about um, a lot of the Gulf countries, like many countries in the world, they're reforming their visa criteria to attract global tech talent. Uh, as you know, global tech talents tend to have a very disruptive kind of um, way of doing things, management and everything. And they also tend to like cryptocurrency, which also is another issue. So how does that um, contrast with the current social norms, including like Islamic banking and all its principles and values? Ah, uh, this is when they move into digital economy.
1: So the Islamic banking crypto, you're saying. I don't think I've um I don't think I can answer that question fully. But all I know is that, for example, you have Binance, who who is operating in the UAE and they have offices. Um, because I know that because I have a friend who works there, and generally, I I don't think I can answer this question fully. Really, to be honest, but they would have to navigate the the structures, the power structures in place, and the social structures. I don't think there will be an exception. Uh, perhaps in terms of KPIs and and achieving their targets, then that is another story. Uh, but in terms of um, navigating what is going on in the country, I think it applies across the board. If you come to to, to Singapore, you you your company would have to navigate our, through our guidelines, and which was Binance uh, not being able to to do that here but now they are being able to do that newly, which means, I guess, they succeeded in, in doing so. Uh, thank you so much. In the meantime, other questions
0: are coming. I, I'm not actually asking you a question, but in terms of further elaboration of what you have already said, we have talked a lot about the kinship, you know, and uh, what we have been seeing in terms of reform in Saudi Arabia, uh, it's a family issue, right? Uh, the son has been following certain policies, uh, whereas the father is already there, so what was really preventing previously uh, that these uh, developments were not happening when he was, MBS was not a crown prince, right? That's one. The other thing is that uh, since King Salman is already there, so is it happening as a king? So is it happening through his blessings? It's some intriguing you know, curiosity I have if you could elaborate uh, on that. What exactly is happening within the family? their orientation between the two generations in terms of their uh, in terms of reform and uh, islam
1: okay so your question is on the political
0: leadership uh, not not the political uh, but uh, their orientation
1: towards islam towards uh, reform not the power struggle part uh, yeah so orientation towards islam i think uh, the crown prince gave an interview uh, and he stated very clearly that you know Islam must keep up with the times. You know, He, he was asked whether uh, Saudi Arabia is still following the Wahhabi doctrine, and he said that Islam must keep up with the times. It, it can't be a soul doctrine that we follow blindly, to put it simply. Of course, I'm not saying it word for word, but that's the gist of it. Uh, when you talk about the father-son relationship, uh, I think this has to be considered on a case-by-case case or issue-specific, issue, issue specific, let's just say. So, for example, and, and the normalization of relations with Israel, Saudi normalization of Israel. This probably, and, and again, this is pure speculation, but then again, you have his father who was there during the time when the Arab Peace Initiatives of 2002 was there in place. Whereas a younger generation and the generation to which uh, the crown prince belongs to uh, probably does not subscribe to that thing that we should have a we must have a two-state solution in order for peace to be achieved, but then because he is respectful towards his father's wishes and the fact that he belonged to a generation with which witnessed you know that landmark initiative, he doesn't push it. So I think that relationship and on this issue things might change you know in the future when he becomes when when he ascends to the throne uh, of course there are, there's also going to be a whole uh, list of benefits if if an external power wants to convince the two to normalize relations and of course that is another discussion altogether yeah okay
0: uh, thank you so much now on uh, if there's any question you know I would really invite please go ahead.
6: Yes uh thank you so much for the insightful sharing. I'm Alden from Huachong. So um my question is um about the phenomenon or issue of uh religious fundamentalism and how maybe how would you think um that might affect uh the various ambitions and development uh goals that the countries have set for themselves. Yeah. Uh
1: religious fundamentalism something that we we look at the Institute uh, intensely because of the Islamic currents between the Middle East and Southeast Asia, for example. Um, of course, right now, with all this push towards modernization, uh, and Saudi Arabia being one of the Gulf Arab states, which actually was a big funder of Islamic charities in Southeast Asia, has now turned off the tap. Uh, and, and I have a good friend who does who works on this subject, uh, his name is uh, Zotan Paul. You can you P A L L Paul or Paul. Uh, you can you can uh, Google him. But the fact is that you know these Islam the tap the money that goes towards these Islamic charities in the region has has dried up. Uh, precisely because of what we covered earlier, we covered the fact that you know uh, there is a push towards modernity. Wahhabism is no longer the doctrine; it's a doctrine. um and and things like this so you no know, religious fundamentalism i think all along the gulf arab states have worked very closely with the us in terms of counterterrorism and this will carry on uh, counterterrorism is still part of the agenda um, but if you talk about this kind of fundamentalism that is developed through pesantren schools islamic boarding i think that that has changed the landscape has changed uh, pretty much uh thank you so much you had a question
6: so my name is Bastian. I'm studying at NUS. Um, and so I had the chance to study policy making this semester. And while I understood how fundamental is policy making to transform an economy or a country or its culture, I also learned how context it can be to shape good and efficient policies. So considering that, like the Middle East and countries don't have like lots of experience when it comes to policy making, or don't have like lots of knowledge, where do they actually source that knowledge? and um, whole yeah thank you for that
1: Yeah uh those of us who have lived in the or actually stayed in, in the Gulf States will, will very will know very well that the the source of knowledge that that was your question uh, comes from a group of advisors there will be an advising team close to the leadership. You take the UAE for example, uh, each emirate the ruler of each emirate has an advising team. Uh, Whether it's towards uh city planning, tourism development, there's someone who is placed as the CEO of that uh, department or of that directorate who is in charge of assessing the situation and giving feedback to the ruler. And then of course the, the decision making comes from the top. But the advice comes from this team, which can be which can comprise um Expatriates, uh, expatriate expert advice, uh, and also my friend, my colleague John Liu, was also part of the National Defence College, which also shows that, you know, there is also a team that advises, defence the defence sector as well, so there is always a um, hired team, that will do that job. Uh yes, thank you, and uh,
0: just let me see if we have any more questions from online. Just give me a second. Okay. Uh, one question from my side about rent state, uh, because you have uh, delved in it uh, a great deal. And uh, because a lot of reform, as you said, no taxation without representation, things like mm-hmm. that. You know, A lot of things related to political reform is uh, linked to that. Uh, I, as I look at it, uh, since the inception of Islam, you know, uh, uh, Makar Medina being in Saudi Arabia, they have a mindset of this. Uh, rentier, not exactly Theory came very late after the aisle came. So how do they really intend to get out of this mindset uh, from this rentier state mindset the government has been trying, but how will it affect the society to come out of this mindset and adopt this taxation or get ready uh, to do that? Is there any
1: possibility? Uh, Is there a possibility of uh, coming out of that rentier uh, mindset mm-hmm. difficult i think difficult uh, because they have been so used to it and and because they're still enjoying the benefits of of that model right now even though there is a push towards encouraging entrepreneurship there's a push towards encouraging startups especially in Saudi Arabia and the UAE but you know if you look at the figures and you saw the diagram earlier public sector is still saturated, it's still bloated. And without that shift, I think the physical shift of employment, people going into the private sector, you always stay, people must see that going into the private sector isn't so bad after all, and that you can also have the same kind of earning power, if not more or better, than if you were to stay in the public or government sector. And I think the other problem is um a mismatch between your skill set and what the government offers you and i often hear that uh, especially from kuwait where they say that i have this skill set but the government put me in this job which doesn't utilize what i'm good at and i think that's also another thing you know if you are doing nothing or doing something that is not useful to your your position, your job position, but yeah, you are getting money for it. Would you leave? I think that's a there is another question you have to ask them. Not yeah.
0: So yes. Uh, thank you. And a related question uh, from online audience, Arbab Alamgir. Uh, he is basically asking about: uh, Is there a possibility in the girl societies to have some sort of combination of kingship and democracy? I think you have done a lot of work in this uh, in these countries the possibility to have sort of combination. Or is it from my side, is it already
1: there in existence? Uh. Kingship and democracy. Hmm. Um, I think that goes somewhat ties into the kind of customs and traditions that I talked about earlier. Uh, It's not democracy in the Western sense, for sure, but it's democracy in terms of consensus. And it's a kind of tribal implicit tribal consensus. It's the idea of first among equals. So within the ruling family, I have all the sheikhs, yes. But they agree that you will be leading us. So there is a concern that democracy is not the kind of democracy that we are talking from a very Western angle where you have elections and all that. That is simply by sitting down, seeing you face to face, and I say, okay, you be our sheikh because you are the most capable. And and that's democracy in that sense, you know, and, and not... In the Western uh, concept conceptual sense, yeah.
0: Okay, thank you so much. I think it has been a very learning experience for all of us. I have learned a lot. Uh, feeling tempted to ask you a lot of questions, which I will ask later. <laughs> and uh, uh, before uh, concluding this session, I think I must thank everyone available here as the audience and online on Zoom. And for their ask for their question, I thank you for uh, your lecture also thank MEI for organizing this uh, uh, MEI series and we uh, welcome all of you the next week uh, uh, the session will be on oil and gas we will have another Singaporean scholar Dr. Uh, Lee Chen Sim uh, from Abu Dhabi so we are looking forward to that lecture as well uh, with this I did goodbye thank you so much bye-bye